I think we're ready to start. Great. So welcome everybody. You're joining us on Zoom, Facebook Live or later on the recording. Um, this is the last of our three parts of um, Hanukkah, the holiday of homebodies with Rabbanit Leasana. Um, as you come into the Zoom room, I will invite you to become a panellist. You should accept. It just means that you can show us your lovely smiling faces if you so wish. And when Rabbanit Sana invites questions and comments, you'll be able to unmute and ask yourselves. We just ask that when you are not speaking, you keep yourself on mute so it minimises the background noise and we can all hear each other. Your questions and comments are always welcome in the Zoom chat or if you're joining us on Facebook Live, then in the Facebook comments and I will bring them to the Zoom. I will be sharing the source sheet in the in the chat as well and Rabbanit Sana will be sharing the sources. Um, and with that, I pass it over to our teacher. Okay, hi everyone. So as usual, I'm gonna share my screen. Um, and then with that just means that I'm not gonna be able to really like um, mind the chat. So um, if you post a comment there, Lilianas can read it out um, or you can, uh, you can just interrupt. Okay, so just to like say a little bit about where we've been. Uh, so in the first class, we kind of introduced our topic. We introduced the idea that ner ish ubeito might not just mean the, a candle for a person and this household, um, but actually a physical house. Um, and then the question is, well, kind of which matters more? Is it about the like representation of like one house, one household, or is it about um, the representation of every single person when you're doing the mitzvah optimally? And we saw that debate between the Rambam and the Tosfot on that. Um, we saw then a debate about whether you need a physical space or not. So we saw the um, Maharsham and we saw Eliezer, they're going to be making, as promised, a glorious return tonight. Um, but now that you've seen them already, we'll just be looking at them very quickly in a slightly different context. Um, last week, we talked about the Achsanai, the lodger. Um, what does it take to make the place that you're staying, if it's not actually your house, what does it take to make that place home enough that you can light Hanukkah candles there? Um, and we saw some real discomfort about doing that. So in the Gemara, we saw, um, first we saw a statement that said, yeah, and then we saw, right, that the lodger is obligated in, in Hanukkah candles. But then we saw um, someone saying, you know, yeah, I used to be Mishtatif. I used to participate um, with, the, um, with the people who I boarded with. But then I got married, and so it was actually better. My wife lit for me at home, um, and so actually, and then so then we started asking, like, well, is that actually better? Um, and all the different rules relating to a lodger, um, many of which are quite interesting. Um, okay, so tonight we're going to be talking about the physical house, uh, the physical house in which you light, um, and and really trying to figure out like what. So the purposes of Hanukkah, what is a home? I think that maybe the highlight of what we're going to see is the Minchat Shlomo of Shlomo Zaman Arbach. He says something that seems a little bit different from the Maharsham and different from the Tzitzel Yazar, who we already saw. Um, and so I think that's going to be uh, really interesting. Um, but before we get there, so I think if, you know, if you asked around and said, what are key elements of a home? I think a lot of people would say that privacy is a key element of a home. And there's something about Hanukkah candles that actually um, undermine privacy and almost work against privacy. Like they're in order to light Hanukkah candles in your home, it seems like you need to not have a private home. Um, and that's really, really, really interesting. You need a, so the question of like, where is it optimal to light Hanukkah candles is gonna, it's gonna be all about your house. 
But then the lighting of the Hanukkah candles itself is going to undermine some of the privacy that we not in, in, in Halcha, we not only see privacy as like a definition of a home, but um, it's even like a monetarily defendable right. <laughs> like if someone builds something that's just like too close to your house, such that they can see into it or that they impinge on your privacy, they've they've done a kind of damage to you that you can collect on. It's called Hazekriya. It's described as the very beginning of Vavatra. Um, and Hanukkah seems to work against that in a way. So let's check that out and see what that's about. Um, so the Gemara in Shabbat 21b, so it's a mitzvah to place the Hanukkah lamp at the entrance of your house, the Gemara says, on the outside. So like, what does that mean? Um, so it seems like in, in maybe like the ideal place to put it is in those transitional most transitional space between outside and inside, um, really like at at your door. Um, and somehow, um, it, and somehow the door of your home is this optimal place for Hanukkah candles. We'll see in the Ramah maybe why that is. Um, but then, but if you live on the second story of a home, you don't have your own individual exit from the house. Then you put your Hanukkah candle in a window that's close to Rashut Harabim. Um, and why, like, why do you do that? Um, because clearly, right, like you want people on the outside to see your menorah, and so you put it somewhere that's inside and where people will be able to see it, um, which is so interesting. You're inviting people to look into your windows. Um, like what a, what a, what a almost like creepy suggestion. Um, it's very normal to us. Like I asked, you know, I was teaching a group of high school students last night. I said, you know, everyone go around and say, where in your house you light Hanukkah candles? And everyone said, we light them in a window. And we're so used to it that we don't even realize that, like, it's an invitation and, and turns on an assumption that people are looking into our windows, that it will attract the attention of um, people on the outside. And we'll see, we'll see more about that in a second. Um and in a time of danger where it's dangerous for people to see your Hanukkah candles, then you put it on your table and that's enough. Rashi understands that there was some like Zoroastrian holiday where you're only allowed to burn fire um, in the like their house of idolatry is his language, um, and therefore um, literally having your Hanukkah candles outside or anywhere that people could see it would be dangerous so then you really put it inside but unless you're in a type of situation where lighting Hanukkah candles would be dangerous you put it at a place that like attract that 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 almost purposely has this lack of privacy that's how you do the Pirsum Hanais such that in those transitional points of your home such that people inside and outside can see it and appreciate it so if it's right outside my door then people inside and people outside can see it if it's in my window people inside and people outside can see it and that's a sort of optimal performance of Pirsum Hanais um, and then the like secondary or like the secondary performance of Pirsum Hanais would be if people only inside can see it and you would only do that bishat hasakana you would only do that um, when it's dangerous but this idea that like we're going to do something that's a home-based ritual but that's going to be visible inside and outside is very fascinating and in some ways it already sort of undermines the idea um that Hanukkah is about um is about this sort of ideal Jewish perfect Jewish home um because uh, our ideal homes are private. Um, and Hanukkah, Hanukkah is about being flashy. Hanukkah is about spreading word of the miracle, um, both in our homes and outside all at the same time, which creates this sort of inside outside pathway that we're usually quite averse to. Um, Rashi and Tosu would have a little bit of a debate about what this Petach um, Beitomi Bachut means. So Rashi says, so outside, in order to publicize the miracle, the low but you're not putting it in Halorina in the public domain. 
אלא בחצרו שבתיהם היו פתוחים לחצר. So you're not putting it, like, it seems like almost with this paradigm of, well, like, Hanukkah candles are a little bit privacy violating, um, that you would, um, Rashi, Rashi seems to address that kind of, like, yes, you're putting it outside your door, but only within your courtyard, only within your chatzer, not, so, right, so imagine, like, you have a courtyard, maybe it has walls, and there's a few different houses within the courtyard, so within our courtyard, we're each publicizing both to people within our house and people outside of our house by putting our Hanukkah candles right outside our doors, so everyone within the chatzer sees our Hanukkah candles, everyone in the courtyard sees our Hanukkah candles, but they're not um, in the, like, gateway from the courtyard to the street. That's not, that's not how Rashi understands it. Versus Tosfot, who says, um, um, Tosfot, who says, Aval im yesh chatzer lifnei habayit mitzvah lahaniyach al-patach ha-chatzer. Tosfot say, no, if you have, um, it's actually, you want this to be seen from the public sphere, and if you have a courtyard in front of your house, then you're actually lighting at the entrance of the courtyard. So this is a debate between Rashi and Tosfot about if you have a bunch of houses and a courtyard surrounding them, do you light outside your house or do you light outside the courtyard? Okay, so that's um, piece number one about like, is this like, what kind of house is this about? It seems to be about a house, but, but not a very private one. And in fact, maybe one that's even exposed fully to the to the public um to the public domain the way to was fully described there now let's see another gemara that's going to play into this conversation this is also um a really fun gemara i was teaching this again last night um to a bunch of high school students um okay so this is our our hanukkah candle our hanukkah camel if you didn't know um what animal is the mascot of hanukkah it is this flax laden camel he is the official Hanukkah mascot. <laughs> um, you thought it was a potato, but it's actually a camel covered in flax. Um, so we have in the Mishnah a gamal shayata un pishtan. We have a camel laden down with flax, avar shooter abim, and he's walking through the public domain. The nichnesa pishtan chanut, and his flax gets inside of a store. The dalka benero shalchanvani, and it lights on fire because of the it the flax on this like wide load camel <laughs> gets into a store, it lights on fire from the candle or the flames that were lit by the store owner to illuminate his store. And then he'd leak it up your eye. And then this camel, this poor wide load camel covered in flax burns down a building. So the camel is kind of an arsonist here by accident, poor camel. Um, and in this case, the owner of the camel is liable he should not have been bringing his wide load flax covered camel into a situation where he clearly didn't fit and where he was getting himself stuck into other people's stores and that is dangerous and caused the fire and burned down a bill okay so in that case but if I have fire outside of my store so that people can see my store so that it looks all welcoming, you can imagine a million good reasons why a store owner would maybe have candles outside the store. Nevertheless, if your candles light someone's camp passing by camel on fire and burn, burn down a building, that's on you. Okay, here's where Hanukkah comes in because I know you were all waiting. Rabbi Yudo Omer Bener Hanukkah Patur. Ramita says, well, if it, these are Hanukkah candles that light the camel on fire, that turn, build the building, that burn the building down, then the, then the owner of the camel is, um, is maybe not, we don't know what the owner of the camel is obligated in, but we know that the shop owner is not obligated. And so the shop owner doesn't have to pay. Um, and that leaves open lots of other possibilities about who would. Maybe the guy who owns the camel, he should have known. It's Hanukkah. Don't bring your camel here. It's a little narrow. People light outside. But the idea, anyways, coming out of the Mishnah is that you would be lighting Hanukkah candles outside your, uh, like in the public domain. You would be lighting your Hanukkah candles at a height at which a camel could realistically light on fire. <laughs> um, and um, and we 
as a community are willing to accept the dangers, uh, the fire hazards inherent um, in that situation. So it's a very interesting Mishnah for all sorts of reasons. And then not to mention like Hasidic um, commentators have all sorts to say about like what the camel represents and who the camel represents and all sorts of amazing things, but we're going to leave that be. Um, the main point is uh, that it touches on this debate of like, where are you lighting? Um, is it, it's, does it kind of violate this like public private? And I think the camel again shows you like, it's, it's, it, it is a little privacy violating, right? This camel is walking by and is, is like, load is getting into your into your store like into your house um that's um that's a pretty big deal and like that's that exact same like right at the entranceway sort of place that you're lighting your Hanukkah candles so again this Hanukkah candles because of the obligation for Pirsumei Nisa they kind of undermine the privacy of the home um and that's that's um that's a piece that I'm very interested in um, and then just in the Gemara, we have a whole discussion about maximum height. Do we have a max? Do we have a minimum height? Do we have a maximum height? Um, and so the maximum height ends up being ner Hanukkah mama psula. So Hanukkah candles that you have up higher than twenty cubits from the ground, which is really quite high. That's very high off the ground. Twenty cubits um, are pasul. Um, and you might have thought, well, those Hanukkah candles—they're so high up because just like that's how, that's where I want to like light up my room or that's where it's convenient or that's where my window is. But the fact of the matter is that when they're up so high, people can't see them. And the whole point is for your privacy to be kind of violated by Hanukkah. And if no one's going to be looking and no one's going to be seeing them, if they're up so high, then, um, then it doesn't accomplish anything. Okay. So here's the Rambam on where we want you to light. So the says, So he adopts the language from source number one. Um, the mitzvah of Hanukkah is to place the Hanukkah lamp at the outside entrance of your home, um, on the outside entrance of your home, within the handbreadth that is closest to the doorway, on the left side of a person coming into the house, so that you have your mezuzah on the right and your ner Hanukkah on the left. So if you're ever looking for a source that says Hanukkah candles are so like mezuzah, they're chuvat habayi, they maybe would have all the same house then requirements that a mezuzah has, because what do you do for eight days a year? You have your mezuzah on one door and your Hanukkah candles on the other door and just like, what could be more housey? than that, right? Like if you were looking for a source that said Hanukkah candles must be lit in the exact same definitions of a home that are required, let's say, for mezuzah, this would be a great source to say that. Um, but interestingly, that's like not really where the halakha goes. The Rambam doesn't really take it in that direction. He just hints at it here by drawing this beautiful image of like that transition in and out of your home being surrounded by mitzvot. So he still has that inside, outside, public, private piece. Um, and um, um, it, and he connects it now to mezuzah, which again is also a transitional, a transitional kind of item. Um, and then he says, mm-hmm. So if you live on the second floor, you would light facing, um, you would light in a window facing the public sphere, uh, facing, facing the public domain. And Hanukkah candles that are higher than 20 cubits above the ground, you haven't accomplished anything because they're because it does not attract attention. It's not recognized at that height. Like the point of Hanukkah candles, again, like the Rambam saying it clearer than anyone, is to attract attention and bring attention to those exact transitional points of your home, doors, windows, places that are almost like scary or that compromise you and so built in to this rubric with the Rambam doesn't bring it but like built into this rubric of ideally put it at a door if not a door window is a sense of like this makes you vulnerable 
This leads to this can lead to sakana. So if it's a case, if it's a world where this public display right at the transitions between the public parts of your house and the private parts of your house doesn't feel safe, then you can light indoors. Um, and so I think that recognition of there being a time of a potential sakana in this really like drives home the the like privacy violating elements of this um of this mitzvah. Okay. So um that is complex complicating piece number one on like Hanukkah is all about the home. Well, is it really all about the home? Because actually it seems like the core mitzvah of Hanukkah is about violating your privacy, making the inside of your home uh, viewable to the outside, celebrating like doors and windows and transitional spaces that make you feel vulnerable. Um, and, um, and so if it's all about the home and feeling safe, then maybe you exactly would not do that, right? And we know we know situations where um, that has been, like the opposite of this has been the case, right? If we think of Pesach Mitzrayim, where it's like, do not leave your home, right? Then it, that's kind of like exactly the opposite of this. If Pesach Mitzrayim is like the mashchit is outside and we are staying inside and we're marking our doors with blood, in this case, we're putting our lights right outside the door and we're sort of saying like, welcome <laughs> um, to, to anything that comes there um, in a way that um, that is open to danger um, quite sort of quite explicitly. Okay, I think we're gonna um, skip the prechadash. We've really like done justice to that idea. Um, so the next, the next thing that I think is is definitional to home on Hanukkah um, is what you do in your home normally. So last week we saw the achsanai, the lodger, and there we sort of saw okay anywhere where you are temporarily, it really just might not be a home like the temporariness itself of you being there means that it's it's not really your home and so like we saw that Ravasher Weiss at the end um and so you have to buy your way into the home you want to be part of this home you have to be Mishnatif you have to participate um with some money or something like that or someone can like for you in your actual home um but what about like what makes it your actual home so it seems like, and we started talking about these definitions last week, an actual home is a place where you eat and sleep. And so then the questions arise, okay, when I am eating and sleeping in separate places, what do I do? And we we saw the beginnings of this a little bit, but just to really like, we and we saw this Rashba last week, um, right? When I'm eating and sleeping in separate places, which one of those is is actually my home and that's a halachic debate um so that and 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 remember if you know if you live in a house or an apartment with a kitchen uh then you're probably eating and sleeping in the same place but imagine that you're an undergrad or a high school student or someone who's eating in a cafeteria and sleeping in a dorm then actually you're regularly eating and sleeping in different places um so which one of those is where you live? Do I live in the cafeteria or do I live where I sleep? Um, and I think if you, you know, when I was an undergrad, it would always be like, because people were in different dorms, obviously, you would ask someone, where do you live colloquially? And the answer would be like, I live in Pearson College. You know, like it would be like, you would say the building that you lived in um, and no one would say the place where I eat. <laughs> <laughs> that's not where I live um, but some people would say I live in the library <laughs> um, and if you add if push come to shove you said where do you spend more time since didn't sleep very much would definitely have been in the dining hall than in my um, than in my residence but it's actually complicated because I think if you had had said where do you if you had said no really where do you live I think I would have said where I sleep so I, I do recognize the complexity of it especially because if you only have a place to sleep and you can't cook food ever, and you can't, um, I know someone like this, like they 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 have a, uh, an apartment where they have a place to sleep, and they have like a microwave, 
and that's their apartment and that's how they live and it, it's actually hard for them like they um not having access to a full kitchen and not having full access to um the kind of wholesome failing food that comes with that is is a real stress on a person um and that's why the United States has a lot of laws about like uh, what are requirements of housing um, in part to make sure that people can like eat and sleep together. So what if you had to choose between the place where you eat and the place where you sleep? So we have a debate between the Rashba and the Maharshal. So the Rashba says, we saw this last time. Um, so if I eat somewhere, even if I sleep somewhere else, I actually don't have to light in that other place because I, in the place where I sleep, because the place where I eat, that's my family. I'm part of that community. So if the owner of that place where I eat, let's say my father-in-law's house or something like that, if if my father-in-law is then lighting Hanukkah candles, I do not need to, um, I do not need to light my own because I am included in that. Um, but says the Rashba, yeah, you should try and like participate a little bit. Um, but really, um, really it's where you eat that determines and you should not like light on your own in the place where you sleep. So the Rashba says, if you had to choose between eating and sleeping, he chooses eating. The Maharshal says um, the opposite. So the Maharshal says, Khatan um, a person who eats in his father-in-law's home if if he possibly can, even if he sleeps in his father-in-law's home as well, he should not be mishtatif. Rather, he should still light for himself in order to fulfill the mitzvah and mahadra level um, because, he, you know, he's married, he's a person, he has a family, like, he should he should light on his own. Um, but if he sleeps somewhere else. So he eats, his father-in-law feeds him, but he sleeps in his own house. If he sleeps somewhere else, then he has to light where he's sleeping. So the Rashba says, if you're going to separate out eating from sleeping, and that's what you do in your life, the Rashba chooses eating, but the Maharshal chooses sleeping, which I think is, um, you know, both of those are kind of indicative to like, what's a What's an ideal home? An ideal home is a place where you eat and sleep and a recognition that people are should still be lighting Hanukkah candles, even if they don't do both of those. Um, but each of these is kind of, um, there's like a little bit of an asterisk. Like the Rashba says, yeah, you should participate. You belong to the family of the place where you eat, but like ideally you should participate. And uh, Marshall says, you belong to the place where you sleep, but even if you sleep at your father-in-law's home, you should really, because of Mahadran, you should um, you should really light your own. So even though they both have opinions about like what is definitional, whether it's food, whether it's where you eat or where you sleep, they both have hesitations about it also. Like everyone sort of wishes, well, it would be much clearer if you ate and slept in the same place. Okay, Rina, yeah. Um, yeah, I just, it's very interesting to me, like this class and, and last class, the idea about how, um, of buying into a home, because like, it just seems, um, so different and in contrast to, um, I guess the way I thought about home before about like home being, you know, about like love or I don't know, like family, it's like, oh, this is my home. That means that we have to like you know, talk to each other or something like that. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then now it's, and now I'm realizing like in Halacha, not that that's not part of it, but it's like, it's defined by also like monetary things, like with the uh, husband and wife. Um, I think like a wife is required certain things to her husband and a husband is required certain things to a wife. And uh, just thought that was interesting, like a different way of looking at home is where the heart is, or it's also like, there's like a financial side. Yeah, well, we always say it what what I always say like at weddings when people are signing the ketubah is that anyone who thinks a home is just built on love without any attention to practicalities, Judaism thinks that that marriage is not set up for success, and that actually showing yeah. someone you love and showing someone that you love them involves taking care of them, involves making yeah. sure your house is in order, <laughs> yeah. um, and taking care of them like financially and in all kinds of other ways. Um, and if you think like the emotions are enough to get you through, 
Probably not if they're not followed up with practical with practicalities. Yeah. And you would say, okay, but the practicalities alone are insufficient, right? Right. Yeah. I, I don't know. I wonder if there's something in any of in any of the halacha having to do with like Hanukkah or other laws with the emotional part, because I, I do see that there's a lot about the financial side, which is, I don't think it's not important. I think it's really interesting. And like, it could, uh, it's like, I think the practical side is extremely important too, but it's like, it's just so different, I guess. Then, yeah, I wonder if there's any, like the emotional side. Of there it. definitely is, but it's not really found in halachic writing, <laughs> which is what yeah. I, I'm sort of looking at in this course. Yeah um but yeah like once you get to maybe more like musar chasidut um mm -hmm. even like midrash insofar as we have midrashim about hanukkah which we like sort of do usually they're about the war um those are more mm -hmm. places where we get to that emotional side um but i don't i i don't know of any sources the, the closest thing i can think of is what we saw last week but in the menchah asher Rosh rice where he talks about mishtatif that the achsanai, that the lodger is, he participates as opposed to that he purchases and he, he and his language about why why that language of participation as opposed to purchase, which I thought was very beautiful. Um, yeah. And that it's actually about like family making isn't, isn't, it's maybe exactly your critique, right? Like family making is not really about purchase. It's really about participation. Um, you're hoping for love but I got your participation <laughs> yeah well it's I, I did also it may have come off as a cr critique but I also just mean it as it's just like it's just different than the way I, it's more it's it's the opposite it's kind of a compliment too because it's like showing a different point of view than I am than I would have like automatically thought so it's like kind of opening my mind <laughs> so it's like in a way it's a good thing awesome yeah um okay, um, okay. Okay, so now let's look at the physical structure side of things. So we've seen this before. This is the Maharsham about the trains. Um, and he says, he says two things, right? Like he said, like, so the question of the Maharsham is can I let Hanukkah candles on the train? Um, and he says, yeah, like you have a seat on the train, you're a Socher Beitira, and you're gonna both eat and sleep there. So what could be more like that makes you officially a renter of this space. This space officially belongs to you. Once you've paid for it, you're eating and you're sleeping. Okay, so that like just adds evidence to what we saw above of like it matters what you do there. That's going to turn a place into a home. Um, but then um, he adds in some other things also. So he says... It has a, a real home, unlike Rashi's ship, has a roof and the wind doesn't blow there. And there's some kind of like physical structure that's going to turn a thing into a home. So there's physical structure to some extent and what you do there. And I think it's that physical, right? So we spent the first, first chunk of this class talking about that public, private, dimensions Hanukkah candles and in a way right Hanukkah candles rely on you having a home but then they undermine the hominess of your home by attracting attention to your home's most vulnerable points um and um and and to the places that you know maintain your privacy because if you're lighting candles right outside your door and you're supposed to see those candles then clearly your door is open um and um and there's something challenging about that. And at the same time, we're seeing over and over again that this physical structure of a home is still important. What you do in your home, not in the privacy of your own home, but just in your own home is important. The eating and the sleeping and the having some kind of financial claim to the space um, and the space having some sort of structure. So that's what we've seen here so far. Um, the Tzitz Eliezer says, totally the opposite though the Tzitzel Yazar says if it's your if that's where you are and you're sleeping in that place then amazing happy Hanukkah go light candles there's no physical structure at all required for Hanukkah so we saw this already in the first class but just to review he says the mitzvah of lighting Hanukkah candles is tied 
only to the body of a person. And wherever you are, that's where you have to light candles. And even if you make yourself a bed in some corner of the street, but you're sleeping and you're eating there, so it's again, sleeping and eating are together what are going to make a place a home, even now, even without a physical structure. Um, but no privacy, no physical structure. And there's a way in which this is very honest to the um the idea that like well you need a bite but you're going to put it in the door or the window such that it undermines the privacy of your home well if I don't need privacy for narrow Hanukkah then maybe I don't even need a home at all might say that Eliezer he doesn't say that in this chuba but I wonder if you would ask him if that if that would be support for his position like yeah the mitzvah of Hanukkah for him Beto is your household it's your people um, and you know, and he would maybe even say, you know, you don't need to buy it because look, <laughs> where are you supposed to put it? If you have a, a structured space, you're supposed to put it outside of it. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, you're supposed to uh, maybe in a way like, uh, undermine the structure in a certain sense and what really makes a home eating and sleeping and the real problems would say that is if you're eating and sleeping in different places. So eat and sleep somewhere together. And then even outside on your street corner, you can make yourself a, um, a comfortable little spot to sleep. And you can light Hanukkah candles there. Even though no home needed whatsoever. Because this is a mitzvah that is mutalat dafka al-gufa adam this is a mitzvah that is entirely on the body of a person, has no relationship at all to any type of object. Okay, so all of that was review. Now we're going to see maybe um, a different third way that we haven't seen yet before by Rav Shlomo Zaman Auerbach in the Menchat Shlomo. So when he writes here, it's much longer than what I bring. The whole thing is fascinating. Um, all about Bedin Bayit, Le Mitzvah Hanukkah, the, the laws of a, what, what, what kind of house is needed for the Mitzvah of Hanukkah candlelight. Um, and so he quotes our Gemara, and then he says, Mivoir from the Gemara, not the camel Gemara, sorry, the Gemara that we started from, of like, light your Hanukkah candles outside, right outside your door. Um, so he says, Mivoir, the Mitzvah Adlaka Yifuva Al Ha'adam, so he says, right, he brings our Gemara and then he brings the debate between Rashi and Tosvot. And instead of deciding between Rashi and Tosvot, here he just says, for, for these purposes, it just seems clear that there's a mitzvah on the person and a mitzvah on the house. That it's on the person to light the candles in his house, at the entryway to his house, at the entryway to his courtyard, in any of those transitional parts of the home. Then he says, So we saw in the Maharsham, he says, you don't have a roof, you don't have a house. So now, the now Rosh is going to ask about that. He's going to, um, he's interested in that because a house without a roof, if a house without a roof, that's still considered the private domain, um, for purposes of Shabbos, so he says maybe since um since it isn't roofed or we wouldn't call the place a bayit, um we um. It, it is not that maybe you would just say it doesn't have a roof. It's not appropriate. We don't really call it a house. We would just call it four walls. Um, then um, you can't light Hanukkah candles there. He says, how much more so do we have to wonder about a house that doesn't have 10 Tfachim inside of it? Because on Shabbat, that tiny amount of space would not even be called the private domain. 
or you have a house, but it gets blown down in regular wind. Really, in any of those type of places, like we really have to ask about it because is it just that you're actually lighting outside in a place that it would be inappropriate to call that place a house? And then he brings this amazing Gemara from Sukkah. Um, about mezuzah, makah, um, and um, and tarat of the house. Makah is like if you um have a roof and you need a you need a guardrail around it. Um, okay, so tunur banan in So any house that is not four amot by four amot is not is patur from mezuzah is exempt from mezuzah from makah. So we just define that's the guardrail. It, it doesn't become, it can't get Sarah. There's like a whole long list. And then in Tosfot there, it brings in from the Yerushalmi, Degam ben min Someone who takes a vow and says, I will never go into a house again. Um, they can still go into a house that is not four by four a moat, which means which means that in vernacular and the way people normally speak a house that is smaller than four amot by four amot is not called a house um and he says okay hanukkah candles seem like they ought to require a house seem as I don't know, like Tzarat of houses requires a house. Mezuzah requires a house. Ma'akah requires a house. Hanukkah requires a house, but it's not listed in this Gemara and Sukkah. That's so interesting. Um, and so he says, He says, actually, here's why. A house that's not four amot by four amot is not a permanent home. But it actually can be considered an impermanent residence. I know now you're all saying, oh, Zirat Arai sounds like a sukkah, but a sukkah does have some minimum space requirements. You have to be able to fit Rosh Rubo um, into your sukkah. And um, and he goes on to explain why sukkah is different. You can look up the source and find, find this whole thing. Um, but then he says, okay, Balachin. He says, listen, here's the difference between Hanukkah and Mezuzah, Ma'akeh, Tzarad, Habayit, all these other mitzvot, is that Hanukkah is eight days a year. Mezuzah is every day of the year. Ma'akeh is every day of the year. So what's the difference? Hanukkah is importantly different because it's the type of temporary home that's only really needed for these eight days. And it doesn't have any of the requirements of Sukkot because it's not Sukkot. Um, but it does not need, but this four by four question doesn't apply to Hanukkah because that is a requirement of a permanent home. And on Hanukkah, we don't care about permanent homes. Um, so Masha'in came the Inyan Mitzvah Ner Hanukkah Shino Haget Rat Chayt Yamim Masha'er Lachayt Yamim Regilim Lador Gambadira. All right, you can live anywhere for eight days. He says you can live in a totally um, temporary residence for eight days, and it doesn't have to be. It doesn't need all the requirements that um, a, that a permanent residence does. Um, it does not need to be the size of four by four amot that would make it suitable for a permanent year-round residence. That's not necessary at all, says the Mincha Shlomo or Shlomo Zaman Arach, because it's just Hanukkah. You don't need, it's not Ner Ish Veto permanent Beto, it's Ner Ish and your Hanukkah Bayit. That's all we need here, which is so interesting. <laughs> um, it's such a strange and different idea that so far it seems like you need some kind of physical structure, but it doesn't need to meet any of the requirements of physical structures that we see anywhere else because those structures either have the specifics of a sukkah or they're a dirat kava. 
But Hanukkah, it might require a dira, but it doesn't require a dira at Kaaba. It doesn't require a permanent home. It just requires home. And it's not sukkah, so it doesn't have all the rules of sukkah. So it's a dira. So Hanukkah suffices with a dira awry, with an impermanent residence that, um, that there's almost like no rules around it for just this holiday. Okay, so um, so so what are the rules? What are the rules of this impermanent Hanukkah residence? So he says, here's his definition. So when it says, when it says buy it or, or that you light on the, at the, at the window or at the door of your house, you have to light in a space that is unique to you, that you, you have unique access to, maybe. So what does that exclude? That excludes the Rechov, that excludes the street, which is public domain. It excludes the Beta Knesset. It excludes the lighting in a synagogue, which he brings all this literature that I didn't bring for you. By lighting in a synagogue, it specifically doesn't fulfill the obligation on behalf of an individual. So on the one hand, you have this, you have a lighting in the synagogue that's just the like public, uh, just the practice of like Pirsumani's public recognition of miracle. Um, okay, so that clearly is not your house. <laughs> so what defines your house? Then we said, well, all these things that normally would define your house clearly don't define your house. So what is the only thing that defines your house? Well, the public lightings are in Rashid Harabim, but the private lightings are in your own space. Um, it doesn't even need to fill any of the requirements of even like a dirat arai, even a, even a temporary dwelling does not matter. You have unique permission to be somewhere such that where you are is not the public domain. It's just Rashid Yachid, it's just the private domain. Great, you can light Hanukkah candles there. That's enough by it for you, um, which I think is um, is complicated. Uh, it's beautiful a little bit. You need something that's yours for you to light Hanukkah candles, but there's no actual structure required as opposed to Maharsham. But it's not just wherever you are, which is the Tzitzel Yazar. There has to be something that's, there has to be something that's yours. And in that sense, I think that this idea of like, there has to be a privacy for Hanukkah to violate. <laughs> like it has to shine out from something that is privately yours or like uniquely owned by you. Um, and that's maybe like a specific um cube, like a specific um success of Pirsum Hanis. Um and, and we saw in the in the Pnei Yoshua who introduced us to this language of it's a chovat habayit for him it was all about you know the reason why they made it a chovat habayit the reason why they made it an obligation on the house is because of the connection between lighting Hanukkah candles and Pirsumei Nisa and so what we didn't understand at the time when we saw the Pnei Yoshua was like what does Pirsumei Nisa do to a house it takes the privacy of your home and it makes it public. It, it blows open your home. Home. It says, look at my window. And if someone can't see your window because it's too high up, it's Lamala Masri Mama, it's above 20 amot, then it, it doesn't actually work because your privacy wasn't sufficiently uh, violated. Your home wasn't sufficiently opened up by your Pirsume Nisa activity. So for the for the um for Shlomozam and Arbach says like what is the minimum requirement of that home? Just like some modicum of a claim. I have a claim to this space and I'm illuminating it between like me and my space and you in the public space, just enough to like have blown open that boundary a little bit. I fulfilled my um my publicity obligation. And so in a way, this idea of, uh, I want to say two last things, in a way, this idea of pursuing Nisa requiring a home is fascinating, because why does it require a home? 
because you're not really publicizing unless you're doing an act of publicity that makes something public that was previously private. Um, and what's the most private thing we have? Our home. Therefore, Hanukkah requires a home in order to make it public, which I think is like really, really interesting. But then you have to say, okay, so like what's the minimum requirement of a home? The most the the most minimal idea of privacy there could possibly be. And so for Roshul Muzam and Arbach, that's just like this space. I have a claim to it. For the Tzitzel Yazar, it's like, are you sleeping somewhere? Are you eating somewhere? Great. You de facto have, have a claim to that. Um, that's where you are. That's yours. So, and you are yours, maybe he would even say. So you are doing Pirsume Nisa from there. That is your home and that's good enough. Um, versus the it seems like the Rambam, we saw this also last time, um, and it, the Rambam we saw it like last time and this time, who would really say like, no, you need a physical structure. And Maharsham says you need a physical structure um, in order to have a home. And that physical structure says that the Maharsham, it needs to have like a roof. The wind needs to not blow into it. Like it needs to be begadar by it because that's sufficient to have something that's yours that then can shine outwards. Um, and I think that, um, you know, the the, one of the first questions in this class was like, or like the orienting question maybe in this class is, um, Jews have a lot of trouble putting down roots and turning places into homes. Um, we've been exiled a lot of times. We've been kicked out of our homes, you know, so, so, so many times in our history. Um, and that's really in some ways like the hallmark of the Jewish people. Um, and it's certainly, you know, when I when I was preparing this class, it was it was before the, the war in Israel. Um, I, like I had the idea for this class, I think in September, and then um, it just became even more kind of like in your face with half of Israel, like either deployed or evacuated from their homes or obviously um, hostage. And, and so what what could it mean to have Hanukkah in that type of situation? So either it means like, I'm not in my home, but my home still exists and my home is where that publicity is happening. We saw that possibility last time. We saw the possibility of saying, um, this is where I eat and I sleep, even though I'm evacuated from my actual home, but I'm turning this place into a home by eating and sleeping here. And so, and, and having a right to it, this, hotel room let's say that I'm evacuated to so now it's mine or maybe you know my unit is camped here and we've turned it into a home a little bit and that's enough to light Hanukkah candles here um and and the ability to make home out of very very little these tiny little claims um I think is is a very beautiful piece of that of the history of Hanukkah um and and the household of Hanukkah and I just want to and Rina I see your question I'll take it in one second um there's an article that came out today in English, but over the weekend in Makori Shon, um, in Hebrew by Rabbi Abraham Stav, who is a um, a teacher at Machanaim and a very, very beautiful writer um, who he's been deployed. Like he's since October 7th, he's been in the field and he writes about his, he, he writes about his experience of home with his unit. So I'll just read a little bit. Um, the first order for our unit to relocate our temporary encampment along the Gaza border came five minutes after Shabbat. We had already prepared everything for the war's first company-wide meal when the commander ordered, fold up the nets, tie the equipment to the vehicle's roof, and three hours were on the move. We had been there in the field for barely a week. We hadn't set up tents yet, and yet it felt a bit like leaving home. To abandon that space between the dirt mounds on which we had managed to place a board to be used as a bench. To disengage from that perfect little patch of ground on the northwest side of the APC where you can hide from the afternoon sun. We knew that there would be shady quarters and improvised benches in the next place we camp, but that did not dull the feeling of being uprooted, which returned even in the next order to bug out two or three weeks later and the one after that. A person wants to feel at home, no matter where he may be. Hamish kaidin yedersh, baitiyut in our modern Hebrew, even when he's displaced and uprooted from his home, perhaps especially then. Already when we boarded the armored fighting vehicle at the end of Simchat Torah, each of us grabbed the spot that had been his fixed place for the past 15 years in training. Um, and then he describes where each one of them is. 
Um, every place we arrived at, we tried to turn into a home, not all at once. Three weeks passed before I brought my quilt and pillow back from a brief visit home. But it took me seven full weeks in the field before I dared to also bring a bed sheet. And how much aggravation was caused when that all ended up in the mud. But then he goes through some of our sources. So he quotes Rachel Mozov and Arbach. He quotes um, Rewaldenberg, who's the Tzitz Eliezer. Um, and he quotes their kind of debate about whether some sort of claim is needed. So he he translates um, the Tzitz Eliezer, I'm sorry, he translates Rachel Mozov and Arbach as follows. While a house is indeed needed to light a candle, the concept of home for Hanukkah purposes is different than elsewhere in Halakha. That's what we saw today. One doesn't require four walls and a roof or even the sukkah's two walls in a bit, but just some sense of privacy, personal space. He calls that homeliness. As opposed to Titaliaz or Waldenberg, who says, no, you don't need any of that. So Rostav says, it's beyond me to settle this halakhic dispute, but there's something to this approach in the description of a makeshift street corner bed of one who has no other place to lay his head at night be it ever so humble, even a street corner is a place called home. It is his place, and the idea captures my own wartime experience of domesticity in an extraordinary way. Um, and then um, he compares it to Sukkot, but then Hanukkah teaches us that every place may also become home. Domesticity is something that a person carries like armor and can project on the world around him. Wherever you go, this is home. This, I'm just continuing the underlying part. This year, hundreds of thousands of Israelis are out in the field or lying in trenches, and almost as many Jews are displaced, wandering from hotel to hotel. When the siren sounds, we run to a stairwell or a safe room. When we cannot place our trust in any conventional physical dwelling, the community itself, the nation, and its people also becomes a home, an enveloping, embracing, illuminating, and caring home whose foundations will not be uprooted by anyone. So Rina, at the very end, we got to love, I think. <laughs> for you um so yeah I'll take your question now um okay yeah I guess <clears throat> I have a comment that um is it that I'm thinking maybe your idea of some of the um sources talking specifically about um how publicizing needs a home for it it just it made me think of something I was talking about today about how um you know putting a flag of Israel um, on one's private property, how that um, it's illegal for somebody to come and to rip it off versus if some somebody puts some type of a, a symbol like a, a Israeli flag on a public domain, it's not illegal um, unless like it was approved by the state or something like that. But if it's just somebody kind of like graffiti type of thing, like, you know, puts up a flag of Israel, then like somebody else can come and take it down. And maybe that's what makes it more of like a statement to, to put a menorah specifically on one's house because it's like you have ownership of it. So it's more of like a statement versus if one were to just do it in the street and um, in the public domain, it's, it's not as much of a statement because it's not like you're putting it on your own property. Um, just like the thought came to my head. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and I think what you're saying kind of like goes into, um, goes to what I was it, it connects to this idea that I've had that that the that Hanukkah is like a purposefully boundary violating um, holiday <laughs> in the sense that um right when I use my I when I use my home to make a political statement like politics belongs in the public sphere it's the domain of the public sphere so when I use my home for politics I'm actually um like taking something from the outside and bringing it in because politics belongs like in the state house, in the government, in the whatever. Um, and my home is in a way like exempt from the government or like I make the rules in my home, let's say. So, you know, something like that. Um, and so when I bring politics into my home, I'm I'm doing a, doing like a this motion, like an outside in motion. Whereas when I light, light fires outside my home, I, I kindle outside my home or I kindle in a window, I'm taking something that should be inside that's only useful really inside and I'm bringing it out. So it, it's um, it's like boundary breaking in the other direction. But I think both of those are really, really powerful um, 
movements um, and anything that that like crosses that boundary between outside and inside, I think is very powerful. You know, you see it more directly in cultures where people take their shoes off every time they come home or things like that, where you have that really strict boundary between inside the home and outside the home. Um, but I think everyone intuits it no matter what, that there are just sort of different ways of being at home. Um, I think, that, you know, like there's people who like even their bodies or their body language intuits it. Um, there's a different type of comfort at home. Uh, there's a different type of relaxation at home. Um, and so in order to, for Hanukkah, just to like say it again, and then we'll close, to um, really be doing the, the publicity, you need to have that inside to outside motion. This is something that I normally do inside and I'm bringing it out. And in order to do that, I need a space that's actually inside. Um, so what are the absolute barest minimums that I can call inside? That's what determines a home. And what that then means is that exactly as Rostov wrote so beautifully, um, you can do that motion, this motion from very, from very, very little. And what that teaches us is that we can make homes out of very little and we can be flexible and we can be strong and, and, um, and we can still remember miracles and publicize them from anywhere that we can call home through a very, very expansive definition of what that might be. Wow, thank you so much, Ravneet Sana, for another amazing class, getting us ready for Hanukkah and now bringing so much more meaning to our Hanukkah. Um, and thank you to everyone for your questions and your comments, especially Rina. Um, and for being part of our learning community. Before you go, just some quick announcements from Drisha. Registration is now open for Drisha's Winter's Man classes. We're kicking off with a special short program on organ donation from the 25th to the 27th of December. And we'll be continuing our Mission In Depth series, uh, this time with Ketubot with our Ravneet Leosana. Yay! <laughs> so you can find out about all of those classes and sign up at 5784.trisha.org slash winter. Wishing everybody a Chag Sameach. Happy Hanukkah!